You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you now to open the Word of God, turning this morning to the writings first of the Old Testament, to the prophecies of Isaiah, chapter 35. Isaiah, as you know, speaks a great deal about the imminent judgment of God upon an unfaithful covenant people. But Isaiah also speaks frequently about the hope of redemption that lies beyond judgment and exile. And chapter 35 is a chapter of joy, joyful hope of redemption following exile, a chapter that is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. So let us read beginning at verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there and the ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So far from Isaiah, let's turn now to Acts 3, in which we find a wonderful fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah 35. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. 
And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had desired to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The text for this morning's sermon is found in Acts 3 in verse 16 where we read, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago, some some people we know and love in our family received from the hand of the Lord, baby boy, There was much joy in his birth, but sorrow was soon added to the joy when it was learned that this little one had Down syndrome. And undoubtedly, it will take time for parents and siblings to absorb this reality and to adjust their expectations, and they will need encouragement along the way. Well, a long time ago in the land of Israel, amongst God's covenant people, Some parents had disappointment, too. When they noticed after birth that the feet and the legs of their little son were not normal. As the boy grew up, it became apparent that he would not ever walk. Doctors of that time could do nothing for him. He'd never stand up like other boys. When they played their games, he'd only be able to watch. 
When he ran after their balls, he wouldn't be able to join in. When he got older, he wouldn't be able to learn his father's trade, as did other boys in Israel. He'd never become a fully independent young man. And in those days, we should remember, there were no wheelchairs. There was no physiotherapy. There was no surgery, really, available. There were no specially equipped buses. There was no parking for the disabled. In fact, disabled people back then were really quite marginalized. They didn't get out much. They were totally dependent on the kindness of the people of God. And to make matters even worse, according to the tradition of the scribes and the rabbis, they were not even permitted to enter the holy precincts of the temple of God. God's Word doesn't actually spell that out. It does spell out that priests who were disabled were not allowed to be admitted to the temple. But it says nothing about the people of God. But the rabbis had extrapolated from the Word of God, and they had said that people who were lame and disabled in other ways were not admitted into the inner courts of the temple of God. They were not able to witness the worship. They were not able to see the sacrifices. And so, in short, this disabled boy grew up to be a disabled man who led a difficult life. For 39 years now, we know that he was 39 from Acts chapter 4. For 39 years now, this, this boy and this man had lived a life of many challenges. Now, we may assume that as a member of God's covenant people, this young man knew the Scriptures. He knew the hope conveyed by the Scriptures of a better day. He knew passages, we may be assured, like Isaiah 35, where the prophet gives a glimpse of what life will be like when God brings about the great restoration In verse 5 of Isaiah 35, we read, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. And we can speculate that this man must have often wondered what that would be like. When Messiah came to make all things new, what it would be like for him to, to not just get a little bit mobile, but to leap like a deer in the imagery of the prophets. In his mind's eye, he must have seen himself leaping and jumping like a gazelle in the wilderness of Judea. And then one day, shockingly, unexpectedly, in a a moment of time, this man's life was utterly transformed. He received from God through Jesus Christ the complete healing of his life. So let's focus for a while on this passage and see what it shows us about the complete healing of life by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's our theme, the complete healing of life by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we'll notice two points made by this verse. First of all, we'll see that the faith of the apostles is displayed, and secondly, that the faith of the hearers including ourselves, is demanded. First, then, the faith of the apostles in the name of Jesus is really on display here in this passage. Twice, verse 16 says that by faith 
healing came to the lame man, the beggar outside the temple gates. Now, on first reading, you might think that the faith here mentioned is, is in fact the faith of the lame man himself. That would have been a natural assumption if you read the passage without time for deeper reflection. But in fact, chapter 3 does not say one word about the faith of the lame man. It doesn't call attention to him in terms of his faith. Peter does not call him to faith. There is no confession of faith on the part of this lame man in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no indication whatever that this, this lame man in any way initiated the great event that came about. No, the initiative was entirely from Peter and John. And therefore, the faith that is mentioned twice in verse 16 is undoubtedly the faith not of a lame man. It is rather the faith of the apostles themselves. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith that the Lord Jesus Christ would be pleased to work through them for the healing of life. Now, as you will recall, it hadn't always been the case that these apostles had displayed great faith. In fact, when we read through Luke's gospel, his first book, we notice that the Lord Jesus Christ is often chiding his disciples for their lack of faith. Christ identifies the weakness of their faith repeatedly when he says that it wasn't even as big as a mustard seed. But now here in in Acts in the first chapters of Acts, we find the apostles displaying an astoundingly confident faith. They are very confident that the Lord Jesus Christ would work in them and through them. And what had brought about the upsurge of their faith was, of course, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The central event of all of redemptive history the central event to which God had called them to be witnesses. The upsurge of their faith has everything to do with Christ's resurrection, also with his ascension to which they had also been witnesses, and it had everything to do also with the coming of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ shortly before on the day of Pentecost. Because of these amazing developments in which they had been caught up as apostles, Peter and John knew themselves now to be the ambassadors, not of a weak and suffering and dead Jesus. They knew themselves to be the official, lawfully called and appointed and equipped ambassadors of a most glorious Lord, a most powerful Savior, one of whom it can be justly said that He is Lord of lords and King of kings, that He has all authority in heaven and earth over angels and demons, over life, over death, over all creation. The one who had called them, the one who had recently recommissioned them and sent them forth into the world was the Messiah of unlimited power. And this Messiah of unlimited power had promised that he would work through them. In fact, he had promised, you can read this in John 14, in verse 12 of John 14, he promised that they would do even greater works than he had done. Jesus Christ had done astounding things, but he said, when I leave you, when I go to be with my Father, then you will do even greater things than these. John 14, verse 12. And so because of this expansion, this 
rising up of renewed confidence, we find the apostles in the book of Acts preaching the gospel with boldness. They're not afraid anymore of rejection. They're not afraid of what Roman authorities might say. They're not afraid of what the Jewish Sanhedrin might decree. They go forth with boldness and they simply announce Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They do that whenever they have opportunity. They do it with the most astounding confidence. And along with their preaching, we also find the apostles in the book of Acts doing many signs and wonders. In chapter 2 of Acts, in verse 43, we read, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And we can read the same in chapter 5 of Acts, in verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. So the miraculous sign and wonder that we read about in chapter 3 is just one of a, of a large package of miracles that the apostles were performing, it seems, routinely. Everywhere they went, they preached. Everywhere they went, they did these astounding things that, that filled people who saw them with amazement and wonder. Now, Peter and John, as we notice in reading this text, are very urgent in pointing attention away from themselves. They don't want to be known as wonder workers who have some kind of supernatural power. We read in verse 12, Peter says, Men of Israel, why does it surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or goodness or godliness we had made this man walk? Peter doesn't want any of them to think this is some kind of a magic show. He doesn't want them to believe that this is somehow a human power on display here in in the raising up to good health of this lame man. No, he says, we did this miracle in the name of Jesus Christ, authorized by Him and empowered by Him. And notice also how Peter identifies God in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus we should note as we read this that these are the very same words that God used when he appeared to Moses at the burning bush long ago, as we can read in Acts 3. God appeared to Moses miraculously in the form of the fire in the bush. Moses was drawn to it because it was a fire, and yet the bush was not burnt up. And when Moses drew near, then God identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, Moses. And when God spoke to Moses that way, he was giving his servant assurance that all the promises he had made 400 years earlier to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not forgotten, but were now about to be realized. That's why God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all those things I said to Abraham that through him I would bless the nations, Moses, it's going to happen now. I'm setting in motion a whole new chain of events. I'm going to have you lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt, out of bondage. And they're going to be established in the land of Canaan as I promised to Abraham. And through them, light will shine to the nations. Israel will be a witness to me among the nations. Well, when Peter here in verse 13 of Acts 
3 uses the same words that God had used in Exodus 3. He's telling his listeners that once again, the God of the covenant, the God who had made promises to Abraham, is about to act in a dramatic way to bring those promises to a new fulfillment and a deeper realization. It's no accident that references to Abraham frame this passage. We find a reference to Abraham in verse 13. And again, in verse 25, these are like the bookends of the passage. And that's because the point that Peter is making is that the blessings that God had announced through Abraham are now being fulfilled. They are coming to expression. People are experiencing them. The layman is experiencing them. And all of Israel can experience these blessings that God spoke about to Abraham long ago. Well, it must have been a great shock for the hearers in Jerusalem to find out that this spectacular miracle had been performed in the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. That man who came from nowhere, that man who had been rejected by the people, that man who had been crucified recently outside the walls of Jerusalem on a hill. That man, says Peter, that dead man, that man you disowned and whom you rejected, he's the one who has authorized us. And he's the one who, in heavenly glory, has empowered us to accomplish this miracle. You have rejected him. You did not receive him. Just like you rejected all the prophets, so now you have rejected the ultimate prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. You rejected him, but we have shown by this great miracle that in fact, he's the author of life. And you can see that he's the author of life, can't you? What a beautiful expression. He's the author of life. And Israel, you can see that he's the author of life. Look at this man leaping and jumping and praising God here in the temple. Talk about someone who's really alive, restored. Here he is right in front of your eyes. And Jesus of Nazareth, the author of life, is the one who has done it. And so you can hear in this passage the great faith of the apostles. They have complete trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. They know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is the one true, complete, sufficient answer for all the sin and all the misery of the human race. They know beyond any shadow of a doubt that complete healing of life comes through this Jesus, whom Israel rejected, whom God glorified. And so we can also feel in this in this passage a strong call for us, a strong call for us to, like the apostles, put our faith entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only complete, sufficient answer, not only for your sin and brokenness of health and so forth, but for the sin and brokenness of the entire world? Do you really believe that? Jesus Christ is the one, only, complete, sufficient answer. 
Is that for you more than just a theory, more than just the possibility, more than just a rhetorical confession of your faith? Is that for you, brothers and sisters, a deep, solid, unwavering inner commitment? Have you entrusted your life, the life of your loved ones, the life of your church, the life of your families? Have you entrusted this life to Jesus with the unwavering certainty that He is indeed the only way to the complete healing of your life, their lives? Now, perhaps one thing that holds us back from giving ourselves totally in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ is the lack, the apparent lack of signs and wonders in our time. Peter and John, as we heard, did many, many signs and wonders. Chances were pretty good that if you were in Jerusalem in that time, you would have seen something astonishing, something that couldn't be explained in terms of ordinary ordinary cause and effect something that transcended normality, something that caught your attention and focused you on what was happening. If you lived in Jerusalem in the time of the apostles, you would have seen something like that. And today we don't really see that kind of thing, do we? We may hear of people unexpectedly getting well. We may hear of people for whom loved ones and the people of God have interceded with fervent prayer. And we, we find out later on that they have a clean bill of health. And that is in its own way a miracle. But it's not a miracle like the kind of miracles we read in the Bible, is it? It's not something that happens instantaneously by a word. It's not something that happens in a, in a moment in the twinkle of time by the laying on of hands. And besides that, it doesn't seem to happen that often anyway, does it? that someone with a serious disability is suddenly or over a period of time made well, someone with a serious health issue is declared to be healthy again. It doesn't happen that often. How should we understand that apparent lack of miracles in our time? Is it a defect in the life of our congregation that we don't have these kind of things happening regularly? You know, some Pentecostal leaders would say, absolutely, yes, that is a defect. You can read the books of John Wimber, and he will say it is a defect. It's a sign of a defective worldview that we no longer expect the God of Israel through Jesus Christ to perform signs and wonders today. He would say that's because of the influence of the Enlightenment and a rationalistic worldview, that we're we're closed to the, the very thought that God might intervene in this miraculous way. Is that really biblical, however? Is John, is John Wimber really right? Is the Vineyard Movement really right when it teaches that we should expect signs and wonders today? Is that, a, is that a healthy emphasis of the charismatic movement? Now, of course, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we better be sure that we don't ever put God in, in a box of our own devising. You know, we tend to do that. We have a certain idea of God and in our mind, we restrict him to, to our own self-generated expectations. God might do this, he might do that, but he certainly won't do this and he won't do that. And we, we put him, even without saying so, in a kind of a restricted zone, in a, in a sort of a box. And that's a dangerous thing to do. If you pray to God 
and you address him as Father in heaven, Almighty God, and in the meantime, you've already restricted what he might do. What kind of a prayer is that? Is that really authentic prayer? So God can do what God is pleased to do. And if God is pleased to do a sign and a wonder today, then then we should honor and praise God for that. He's almighty. He's sovereign. He's free. He can do whatever he desires to do for his own glory and for the good of his church and for the ongoing expansion of his kingdom. Nothing is impossible for God. God is able to heal. God is able to heal instantly. He's able to change lives instantly in a moment of time in surprising and amazing ways. Still, though, we should keep in mind something that the Bible emphasizes in various places of the New Testament. The Bible does seem to link signs and wonders, especially to the ministry of the apostles. For example, in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, the apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. That would seem to give the impression that not everybody in Corinth had this ability. This wasn't something that was just being done by all the members of the congregation. This was something that Paul connects to his ministry as an apostle. Just like Moses did signs and wonders, as God did an amazing event of liberation, so in this new liberation that God is accomplishing through Jesus Christ, there are accompanying signs and wonders. And similarly, in the second chapter of Hebrews, the author is exhorting his readers to be true to their confession, to their apostolic heritage. And this is what he says about that heritage. Verse 1, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels, that's God's message to Moses, was binding, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testifying to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. Hebrews is a letter that's looking back to the apostolic era. And the author in verse 4 reminds the readers of that time when the Lord Jesus came, spoke the word of God, Apostles came and spoke the word of God, and God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. To really get our minds wrapped around all of this, we, we, we should try to understand what the role of signs and wonders is, is in Scripture. In the first place, they, they function to validate the message. We find that, for example, in Acts 2, going back to Peter's Pentecost sermon. We read in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to, Jesus, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So that there's one of the rules of, of a miracle. It serves to accredit the message. It serves to validate and confirm the revelation of the word of God. And similarly, in Acts 14, we can read about Paul and Barnabas that they spent considerable time in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord 
who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. And so you see an emerging pattern. God gives revelation through Jesus. There are signs and wonders. God gives revelation through the apostles. There are signs and wonders to validate and confirm the message. But miracles don't only validate and confirm the message. They also function to demonstrate the message. The message of the gospel. What is it really? The message of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God will bring about the universal restoration of all things. Peter even mentions this in his words of Acts 3. Jesus, he writes in verse 21, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. So the message of the gospel is the universal restoration of all things through Jesus. Overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming sickness, disability, decay, degeneration, all of it. Jesus has come to overcome and restore. Well, whenever Jesus did a miracle, whenever the apostles did a miracle, this was a demonstration of what the gospel was all about. It wasn't just a random show of power. It was a visual evidence if you will, of what the gospel is really all about. The Jewish people knew the words of Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute will shout for joy. All creation will be united in perfect health, worshiping God. And here in Acts 3, this this leaping, jumping, joy-intoxicated individual is a demonstration of what the gospel is all about. And so to sum up, brothers and sisters, the Lord God, although He is free and sovereign and may choose to do miracles whenever it may prove to be for the glory of His name, and we shouldn't automatically say, if we hear about a miracle, that it didn't happen, it couldn't be, there must be some other explanation that would be unbelief. That would be paganism. That would be enlightenment rationalism. We should be aware that God is almighty. God can do whatever God wishes to do. On the other hand, Christians may not expect and demand from God today that he perform signs and wonders because we have seen the pattern that most of the time the signs and the wonders are correlated with the new word of revelation that God gives through prophets and Jesus and apostles. And we could even say that today, if we take our Bible seriously, we don't even need signs and wonders. Because the signs and wonders experienced by the people of Israel in the times of the apostles can be experienced by us as well through this faithful testimony of the Word of God. And so the primary emphasis of Christians ought not to be to, to long for miracles. The primary emphasis of Christians should be to thank God for the miracles which He has accomplished. As recorded for us in Scripture, for the strengthening of our faith, that we might give ourselves more and more in trust to this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, 
who came to not only take away our sin, but to bring about the healing of our lives. And so once again, brothers and sisters, is this what we really do? Do we really, truly, in the depths of our hearts, entrust ourselves with childlike faith to the blessed name of Jesus? Or could it be that we're more influenced by the idolatry of our age than we would like to admit? After all, the the world thinks the message of Jesus is a foolish message. The hope of the Christian church is just pie in the sky as far as the world's concerned. They don't believe that Jesus can really do anything for the world today or tomorrow or in the future. The very thought of that is, is just weird to most people in our society. People of our society don't put faith in Jesus, an invisible Jesus. They put their faith for the well-being of mankind, not in Jesus, but in many different kind of idols. They put their faith in the idol of technology, medical technology, and many other kinds of technology. They put their faith in the idol of economic growth. Isn't it amazing that today the only apparent role of government and in the eyes of government itself and the media, is to promote economic growth. We don't look to Jesus for economic well-being. We don't look to God for our daily bread. We look to the state to drive economic growth. Many people, professing Christians, have more faith in the power of economic growth than they do in Jesus, in His name, in His power. And so there are many other idols that people believe are remedies to human suffering, misery, disease, and disability. And so let's guard our hearts against idolatry, listening to the exhortation of the apostle when he says, little children, keep your hearts from idols. And you know the beautiful thing is, we don't have to wait till Jesus Christ comes again to experience the, the renewal of our lives. True, the final restoration of all things is future. And even if there were many signs and wonders accomplished among us, the final restoration would still lie in the future. There would still be death in the grave. But in the meantime, as we await the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we await that universal restoration of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ is already making our lives new. And I'll say more about that this afternoon, God willing. But just for now, look with me at verse 19. Peter says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Again, a beautiful expression from the Apostle. Times of refreshing. He's not talking about the last day there. He's talking about this age with all its problems, its struggles, its suffering, its disabilities, its diseases. Right in the middle of that era, still so affected by sin, Peter says, God will send to you times of refreshing. We need that, don't we, brothers and sisters? We very much need to be refreshed. Really, if you think about it, we're all disabled people. Sin has disabled many of our human functions. Not one of us, even those in the prime of youth, really work optimally. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions are all affected. Work is affected. Relationships are affected. Family life suffers. Church life languishes. 
because of the disabilities we have all inherited from our father Adam. Well, in that world of universal disabilities and all the struggles those disabilities bring, Christ says to us, Come to me, all you burdened ones. Turn to me today again, and I will give you rest. Through my Spirit, I will send upon you times of refreshing. I will lift you on the wings of an eagle. I will fill your heart with love and joy and peace. And how does the Lord Jesus Christ do that, congregation? He does it when you pray. When you pray, something amazing happens. You, you are connecting with the transcendent power of God. And when you are finished praying, you may notice that nothing objectively has changed in your life. You still have the same problems. You still have the same health issues, perhaps. But still, something has changed. The way you experience it has changed. The way you process it has changed. The way you evaluate it has changed because you have connected with the transcendent power of God through the Holy Spirit. You've been refreshed in prayer. And if you're not feeling refreshed today, that may be for you a sign that you ought to be spending more time with God in prayer. Just you and God. Unburdening your life. That's what he asks you to do. Cast your burdens down before me. You can't do that just on Sunday morning and afternoon or in family devotions. You need to do this yourself. From the depths of your heart, unburden your life before the Lord in prayer and you will be refreshed. And of course, you are refreshed through the preaching of the gospel. You're refreshed through the reading of the Bible. And you're refreshed through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In fact, when we read the form for the Lord's Supper, it's a striking refrain how through the simple sign and seal of bread and wine, we are nourished and refreshed. And that's why John Calvin always said we should have the Lord's Supper frequently because John Calvin knew from Scripture it's refreshing power. And who would not want that refreshing power of the sacrament as often as he or she can get it? It has great power to renew us, revitalize us, and enable us as disabled people to carry on until the great day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us give our hearts to Christ, young and old. Let's confess that he is the Savior of our lives, and let's publish abroad his great name, to the ends of the earth as the only name given under heaven through which anyone may be saved. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.